Welcome back to PS Editor's Podcast, a bi-weekly conversation with PS contributors and other experts on some of the world's most pressing issues. I'm Greg Bruno, an associate editor at Project Syndicate. Today's topic, free speech in the digital age. On January 1, Germany became the global testbed for how to police hate speech online. The country's Network Enforcement Act imposes steep fines on technology providers that fail to swiftly remove obviously illegal content from their platforms. But almost immediately after enactment, the law was criticized. And today, some free speech advocates worry that it is doing more harm than good, not only failing in its efforts to prevent the dissemination of hateful content, but also disadvantaging other speech in the process. My guest today has thought hard about Germany's internet cleanup campaign and what it means for broader efforts to protect free speech online. Alexandra Borchardt is Director of Strategic Development at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, and she believes that despite the law's weaknesses, the German government is not wrong for attempting to impose a radical fix to a corrosive problem. Hi, Alexandra. Hi. Hi, it's thanks. Me. <laughs> thanks so much for joining us on PS Editor's podcast today. Yeah, thanks very much for calling me. You're well-versed on German media, having served as the managing editor for one of the country's largest daily newspapers, Zoe uh, Deutsche Zeitung. Can you give us an overview of what the German government has just implemented with its Network Enforcement Act? How does it work, and why is it necessary now? Well, the Network Enforcement Act, I mean, it's, the ter it's a terrible name. It is necessary because the German government wanted to do something against hate speech because they felt they just wouldn't want to sit silently any longer and, and just like things happen, let platform companies determine, you know, what's on their platforms in terms of speech and, and what's not. Um, so it's, it's a law, basically it, it forces platform companies like Facebook, uh, Twitter and, and YouTube to remove illegal content, hate speech within 24 hours when it's uh, been when they're notified by by someone who's affected, and if they don't comply, they could be fined up with up to fifty million euros. So this has been telegraphed for quite some time, but the definition strikes me as a bit curious. Obviously illegal, I think, is the term. How do how do we define that? Legal experts don't always agree on what that means. And here at Project Syndicate, we've had our own hiccups with posting videos to YouTube, probably due to headline issues. How can we expect a private technology firm to define it better than lawyers can? Well, they definitely can't. And I mean, that's one of the major criticisms um, about this law, that it's really impossible to define illegal. So we are actually looking at the period of trial and error here. Um, this is not something clear cut. And it's also very hard for the people involved in monitoring the content. Nevertheless, I think it's it's justified to actually do something against hate speech because um, the victims of hate speech suffer very much or they can suffer very much. And it, it's a, the legal processes are just much too slow to address hate speech because obviously every victim could go, you know, get themselves a lawyer or get to the police, whatever, because the content has been, it, it's what, what is illegal uh, can, can be tried with the regular laws, but obviously that doesn't happen fast enough. Many people can't afford a lawyer. 
they're too shy to do something about it. Well, they just retreat from social media or they suffer silently or they suffer obviously. So there's really some issue that needs to be addressed here. If the law as it is now is the best way to do it, well, you know, that's another discussion. But this is, as I said, a trial and error experimentation phase. So how are social media companies actually responding? What types of tools are they using? You know, I've read that YouTube uses something called machine learning and algorithms. What about Twitter and Facebook and the other platforms? Well, obviously, they have to use machine learning and algorithms because it's just so much content uploaded worldwide every second that they just can't monitor everything. But still, there's lots of, there's lots of manpower involved in actually looking at things that are pointed out and uh, Obviously, there are mistakes being made and some stuff is deleted that's not supposed to be deleted or, you know, that should have, shouldn't have been deleted. Um, works of art, whatever kinds of things. I mean, you know, controversies around this. Um, but obviously, um, yeah, there needs to be something to, to be done. I mean, do you have any examples of obviously egregious or misidentified content that's been temporarily wiped from the face of the Internet? Well, the most famous was that that girl, uh, that that uh, iconic uh, photograph of that that girl from the Vietnam War that was uh, running naked and and fleeing from from a chemical attack. And I mean, when that was removed, I mean, there was an outcry and there was you know lots of uh, lots of debate about you know that it's absolutely absolutely not possible to to pick out content like that. But you know, you could appeal to these things and then you know. Put, put these things back. So it's, it's, as I said, mistakes will be made. So are, are the technology companies erring on the side of their economic caution because of the steep fines? I think that's the criticism of, of the German law, that in the context of giving companies the power to be the arbiters of what is illegal and not illegal, that the companies will always err on the side of fiscal responsibility from their perspective which has the potential to damage legitimate and free speech. Obviously, uh, they'll be more cautious about what they are doing. But the real thing is that they got the message, they received the message, and they have to get active uh, to do something about the design of their platforms to um, really shape them in a way that's conducive to, you know, better speech, uh, whatever that is, they have to shape them in a way that prevents hate speech from happening in, in an extent that it does now. Hmm. I would imagine that censors in states like China and Russia are probably enjoying this debate very much. No one has ever really argued that the Great Firewall wasn't effective. Do you think that the German law represents a step in the direction uh, of more aggressive control by liberal democracies? And might it be followed by further steps if the law fails to achieve its stated purpose? Well, actually, I, I don't think so. I mean, someone said, uh, someone said that, you know, oh, this, this German law is a blueprint for Putin. You know, um, I feel, well, Putin definitely doesn't need a German law to have a blueprint or China doesn't need any advice from Germany how to restrict free speech. I mean, these are very different regimes. Germany, in contrast, is a free, liberal, democratic society and will stay that way. And um, so, you know, speech, as I said, will be free 
And uh, there are lots of ways to express oneself. And if you feel restricted in your free speech, you can uh, also complain and, you know, things, things might change. Um, I don't see this danger at all. That there is some need for regulation. That's pretty clear because this regulation is about protecting citizens and it's every democracy's right to protect their citizens, in particular vulnerable voices, uh, so that they don't withdraw from the public uh, sphere. Because, I mean, that's really um, what we are facing here, is if, if there's so much hate speech that minorities, women, other vulnerable groups don't really dare to be on social media any longer because they feel they fear harassment or trolls or whatever, then they'll withdraw from this public sphere and then we'll have free speech only for those who are the loudest, only those who, who get amplifiers anyway. So um, then the free speech will be gone for, for many groups of society and that's really a right of a democracy to protect these citizens. Right. That's one of the, the points that you've noted in your commentary, that often in situations where people are bullied, it's not the bullies that stop using the Internet. It's those that are bullied. Um, and turning off from social media is an increasingly common response in a hate-filled online environment. Yeah. Why should victims' rights count less than those of their bullies, I'm asking? And I mean, that's a legitimate question. And uh, a government uh, has the right to protect the citizens. I think one of uh, a German commentator commenting on the new law said, quote, the only way evil can be rooted out is for perpetrators to realize that their actions on the web have consequences. I know. I mean, sometimes they're really surprised when they find themselves in front of a court because they, they just never felt that, you know, this was sort of something wrong because it's so removed. Uh, if you're in your bedroom and you do something that's really hurtful to someone, you, you might not notice because you feel cozy and you don't have to face this person and you don't, you don't feel you, you facing any consequences. Uh, so these people are very often really surprised when, you know, they're really, when, when someone really gets at them. Right. So I want to turn, if we could, to solutions then. Um, I wonder what the answer is. Improved algorithms, better machine learning. Um, apparently there's a new Facebook algorithm that emphasizes friends and family over news organizations. Will any of this have a limiting impact on hate speech, or are there other solutions that you can think of? Oh, the friends and family thing? I'm absolutely not sure, because uh, if you emphasize... Um, personal uh, stuff and, and friends and family stuff, I mean, it can be even more hateful because obviously uh, you're, doing, you're doing something against, you know, uh, media brands, traditional reliable media brands uh, being displayed. So that really doesn't help. I mean, we, we would have to start or we will have to start at, at, at many ends. I mean, the first one is actually media literacy. What you said before, uh, some people, or what, what we talked about before, some people just don't know how to behave on the internet. They, they just feel they have every right to, to bully everybody because it's suddenly, it's, it's their amplifier, uh, it's their megaphone, and uh, yeah, so, so they feel important. Um, so you really have to teach children even, you know, about consequences that their free speech might have and, you know, to be respectful uh, with each other to, to, you know, what it means to, uh, to forward things, certain images. So media literacy is one point. Um, obviously, the rule of law, it is in place, but it has to be modernized and adjusted to the new challenges 
um, so that people who are really uh, victims get their rights and they get it fast. Um, yeah, the design of social media platforms is really important to encourage responsible use. Um, maybe something like, you know, do you really send this post kind of thing? If, you know, if there's a, if there's hate speech in there and then, you know, you can be alerted to that. I mean, it's, uh, it's like when you send an email and you get alerted to, oh, you know, you, you, you wrote something about an attachment, but there's really not an attachment included. Um, so something like that, the design of, the, of these platforms is important, but also obviously the design of, of the algorithms um, that today just reward speech that uh, gets the most economic impact, the most profits uh, for, generates the most profits for the platform companies. I mean, there's something to be done about that to, you know, have another incentive structure in these algorithms. I like the idea of having an alert message that would pop up and ask if you really want to send that message. I could probably have benefited that from numerous emails in my life to friends, family, and coworkers. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to end uh, with a question that you uh, kind of pose in the piece, um, uh, and it's one about the future, I suppose, of uh, the online experience. You wrote that no one has ever been guaranteed an audience, and that to have an impact, citizens have always needed to appeal to or bypass the gatekeepers. But the internet was supposed to liberate us from all of that, from the gatekeepers, so that we could all be publishers. Do you think that idealism underlying the vision was hopelessly naive? I think the idealism is great, and I think the internet's done great things. I mean, it's it's really wonderful that that people can get publishers. But obviously, since you know, I think two billion people are on Facebook right now. Uh, the sheer mass of contributions of speech just needs some sorting out. And today, these I mean, today algorithms are the ways to to sort out speech. Um, they are the filters. They are the modern gatekeepers. So it really depends on how you program these these algorithms, because there is not a chance that every single human being on Earth will be heard by everybody else. I mean, there's just absolutely uh, no way this could happen. So you always need filter mechanisms. But I mean, it's still there's there are great things about the internet, but uh, lots of stuff has been just beta testing and now you face the consequences and you know things have to evolve and obviously regulation has always been a part of the democratic process because regulation is actually uh, yeah it's a way in our democracies to just uh, you know uh, impose values and ethics on certain practices on people and so regulation is just a natural part of democracy and it doesn't mean that there's no free speech it just doesn't mean it, it just does mean that there's a sensible structure behind these things and obviously speech needs to be structured so because otherwise everybody will just be drowned out in in a lot of noise and nobody will hear anything any longer um, my, I always like to throw in a bit of my own uh, personal observation, and I, I typically end up throwing my family under the bus. Um, my wife has uh, uh, forsaken Facebook for probably four years now. Was she quite visionary in doing so, do you think? Um, well, Facebook. What's, what's Facebook? I mean, 
um, Facebook is just one platform, but they also own um, their own WhatsApp, their own Instagram. So there'll always be another platform. I mean, in, in our digital news report from the Reuters Institute uh, that we do every year, uh, last year's result was that that 80% of all respondents, and I mean, this is the major thing, 70,000 people in 36 countries uh, surveyed, 80% um, of all respondents use a Facebook product every week at least one Facebook product. If it's Facebook or not, well, who cares? And uh, I think uh, Facebook as such well, might be, you know, uh, might be uh, on, the, on the downturn, but, but uh, there'll always be another platform. So um, I think the platforms are here to stay. Mm. Well, Alexandra, that was extremely fascinating. Thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you so much. That was Alexandra Borchardt, Director of Strategic Development at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno. Thank you.